You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks. What? Are we doing a podcast? Yes. Are you recording? We're doing the the podcast is back. No. Yeah. What? Welcome back, guys. Thank you so much. We had a few weeks off releasing podcasts when we were at the Edinburgh Fringe, but we've interviewed some great people. We've got a lot of things lined up. I'm excited for it to be back. Why are you holding that towards my face? I'm not excited. I'm tired. I'm still tired from the Fringe. I didn't think we were doing a podcast. Right, hold on. Look at this little pendulum. You see that? Follow it. Follow it with your eyes. Okay, listen to my voice. Listen to the words that I'm saying. You feel revolutionised, revitalised and excited for the podcast to be back and you cannot wait for people to listen to the great interviews that we've done. And you're back in the room. Tricks, a podcast with us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. And Kane, how are you feeling about the podcast being back? I'm really excited. Oh, oh, I've missed it. I've missed doing these podcasts. We've got some great guests, I believe. Shall we get one on the go? The first guy, a hypnotist, with a show at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, which is going to be popping up a lot over the next few weeks here at Talking Tricks, with his show called The Hypnotist. The Hypnotist. Live and outrageous. I didn't interview him. But uh, did you have a good interview? Really good interview, really informing. We spoke about the stigma around hypnotism, about him. Stigma. Yeah, there's a stigma. <laughs> stigma. You, some people have them in their eyes. Right, yeah. And then there's also one surrounding hypnotism. We spoke about, about that. We spoke about pretty much everything you could imagine about being a hypnotist. And that's coming up for you in a moment. Did he teach you any skills? No, nothing oh, at all. That's a shame. No, I haven't learned anything. Here he is, Robert Temple, the hypnotist, live. On Talking Tricks. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us now on Talking Tricks is Robert Temple, the hypnotist. We are at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe at the moment. Just. Just. We're getting close to the end. On. Robert, how's the, how's the run been for you here? It's been... Such a good experience. Like this is the f- I've been to the Fringe loads, but this is the first time performing here. And honestly, just one of the most amazing experiences. I said to you earlier, it sounds very amateur dramatics of me, but I'm going to like miss this when it's over. Like, I've had such a good time. So I'm interested to kind of hear about you coming up as a punter and how many years had you done that? And when did you kind of think, I want to do this? Was it as soon as you first came up, you thought the plan must be to do a show here at some point? So because I was a magician as a kid, my dad used to work in Edinburgh for the Bank of Scotland. And he was here like Monday to Friday every week and came home for the weekends. And my stepmom was a teacher. So she had the whole of the summer off apart from doing planning and stuff. So we used to come up to Edinburgh for the whole of the month as a kid. And I did it every year for probably five or six years from, I don't know, being 10 to 15 or something like that, nine to 14, something like that. So we used to go and see every magic show going and all of that stuff, everything I could. Even as a kid, we used to go and see Jerry Sadovitz and he kicked us out of the show once and we had a great time. Um, yeah, so I came up loads as a kid and I always knew that I wanted to do it. And then as I moved more into doing just hypnosis stuff, it, I just sort of kept putting it off. Every year I came up for the last few years and I'd go and see other friends of mine, like Aaron Calvert and comedy hypnosis shows as well. I just kept putting it off. And last year I was going to do it and then didn't. And then finally this year I was like, no, sod it, let's do it. 
And has it been everything you kind of envisioned it would be? Yeah, I was actually quite nervous. I don't get nervous about doing my show ever. It's just one of the things I've, I'm lucky I don't get nervous. I think I'm lucky I don't get nervous about it. But I was really nervous about this because there were so many variables that I didn't know how they were going to go. I thought, obviously, we're doing the free fringe. I was like, I don't know whether we're going to get people in every day. We won't have ticket sales to, to look at. I didn't know whether, you know, there were, there's a couple of the hypnosis shows here. Where I was like, oh, is that going to be a problem? But So everything's gone really, really well. I've had two quiet shows where we couldn't really do the show but I think that's out of 23, I'm like, that's all right. Yeah, that's not bad. I'm interested to kind of hear about your decision to end up being on part of the Free Fringe. I can talk for a long time about the benefits and why we right. love doing it, but I'm interested for, for your first time performing. Had you kind of looked into maybe doing some of the big paid venues as well as this? And what kind of led you to, to make this decision? So years ago, when I had no idea about anything, when I was like 19 or 20, I did vaguely look at the, at the idea of doing the paid fringe and looked at how you get venues and all of that stuff. And it seemed quite complicated at the time. I now realize it's, that's actually quite a low barrier to entry, maybe too low. I looked at it and I realized that, that was, it seemed quite complicated. And then I sort of put it under a box. And then a few years ago, I came and I went and saw um, Dave Annick's show which is obviously on the free fringe, and I liked the concept of it. And then I was talking at Blackpool last, last year or the year before to Ian Kendall, and I said, you know, how did the free fringe come about? And, you know, he's been here a long time, and how does all of that stuff work? And I, I saw him do a show on the paid fringe like 10, 15 years ago. And he said that if you want to get, if you want to get like a, a almost a, not, not a guaranteed audience, but if you want the best possible chance of getting an audience, do the free fringe. And he said, and if you want to make money doing it, you're probably more likely to do that on the free fringe as well. And I thought, well, those two things sound good, especially as a hypnotist. Like, I need an audience. And, you know, there's the rule about if one person turns up, you have to do the show. If one person turns up, I can't do the show. If two people turn up, I might be able to. The free fringe just made more sense to me. When I looked at the numbers, I thought, well, it just, made, it just financially looks like it makes more sense. I've spoken to a bunch of my friends who've done the paid fringe and lost a fortune. So, yeah, it just over the last year or so, the free fringe made more and more sense. And what were some of your aims then going into this festival? Was it, you know, building in a show? Was it trying to make a bit of money? Was it just being able to say you've done it and you've performed here? What were the kind of key things that you were looking to achieve during these last three weeks? So I wanted to not lose money. I want, and it has been profitable, so I'm happy with that. I've, the, the numbers have stacked up well. So I wanted to not lose money. I wanted to build a bit of an audience. I have this vision that, because I'm touring across the UK, I have this vision that people from all over the UK and the world, but all over the UK will come to Edinburgh. They'll get the chance to come and see the show for free, pay whatever they think it's worth at the end. And then at the end, I obviously plug the fact I'm on tour and then run up my tour dates. And we've already had some people message me and say they've booked tickets for one of the shows because they came and saw it here. Um, so that was that's sort of starting to work. So I suppose it's partly brand building and like building my name and reputation out there as well. Um, and then I suppose beyond that, I wanted to, be able to say I've done it, like it was a bit of an ego thing. And I love doing back-to-back -back shows. If I can get like 23 shows in cool, like that for me is, because I, 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 every show builds on the one before it. You kind of mentioned your tour. Give us all the details for that, because it's certainly not a case of Edinburgh and then a nice relaxing holiday. You're kind of straight out on the road. Give yeah, us the so I think it's September the 5th or the 6th we start. It's down in Weymouth at the lovely Weymouth Pavilion. I was there last year. I had a great time. Um, I'm actually, so this time I'm cheating slightly. The idea is that every year I'll write a new show. And in August, I'll use the fringe to break that show in and get it really tight and then take it out on tour. Uh, this year I'm cheating because I'm actually doing the show that we toured last year because the tour is going to mostly new theatres. Um, so the plan is, actually this partly answers the previous question as well, is every year I want to do the fringe, if they'll have me back, I want to do the fringe in order to work in new material that we'll then take on tour. Um, so yeah, so it starts on the 5th or 6th of September in Weymouth and then we'll be all the way through until the end of October, finish up in uh, Newcastle.
Has it been a stressful process booking this tour or is it kind of venues that you've maybe got a bit of a relationship with anyway? Has there been a mix of venues coming to you or have you kind of gone to all of them? I'm interested to know how you kind of booked in this, this sort of two-month tour. The reason I started doing a theatre show was totally by accident. What happened was there's a lovely theatre near where I live called the Tyne Theatre and Opera House, 1100-seater Victorian theatre, and I happened to know the managers. Um, and I said, right, I want to hire that theatre, put on a show, and I'm going to film it professionally film it and I want to use that as a showreel to get booked on ships. And that was the primary reason for doing it. So we hired this venue, we sold something like 700 tickets, which is all the stalls, the circle and the upper circle. So I was happy with that. And then we did the show and the show went well. Um, I got uh, Russ Stevens came and filmed it uh, and then edited it down into a, a showreel and then I never sent it to anyone. And the reason I didn't send it to anyone was I was sat in the auditorium that day with um, Kennedy, the mind reader. Uh, we were sat and he helped me write the show. And we were sat there and I just thought, God, I wish I could do this every day. Like, I love theatre anyway, I always have. And I'd love to be in theatres all the time. And then we'd seen The Illusionists as a touring show. And quite honestly, I saw this thing. And I saw there's a bunch of magicians that the first tour, nobody's ever heard of any of them. And uh, a load of illusionists is just branded as The Illusionists. I think this could work. So I said, if I had a show called The Hypnotist, I think it could just work. People know what that is. They know what they're buying into. There's nobody else doing it uh, in theatres. So I thought, it's time to go. So I said, right, next year, I'm going to book in 10, as is last year, I'm going to book in 10 theatres. So uh, I started emailing loads of random theatres around the country, totally random. And uh, a bunch of them replied. And then so many of them replied, I thought, sod it, see if we can do some more. So it ended up being 17 dates across the country. Some were good, some were horrendous. We had to cancel a couple. I'm quite open about that. Um, and uh, that was it. So I had such a good time. And I was, and that, that, that project as a whole, I was like, there's something about this. I want to keep doing it. So this year I said, okay, great. In that case, it makes sense. I'm just going to do this batch of shows in August, have a week off, and then start doing it through September, October. And it just sort of felt natural. So I just started. I wrote out to the theatres that did really well last year. I said, can we come back? And they all said, yeah. And then I wrote to a bunch of new ones. I've worked with a tour booker as well, who's like booked into some of the venues I couldn't get into myself. Um, so it's been a challenging process and because I'm mostly a one-man band I'm supported by some good people Gary who runs all my tech stuff um, Kennedy who writes the show with me and directs it um, and that that's been good that's been a really good experience but you know, I'm mostly a one-man band so me and my I've got a virtual assistant sort of making sure we're chasing up theaters are the posters up yet has this happened yet have they arrived has that happened yet so it's sort of stressful learning on the job learning as we go but it's really fun I want to uh, kind of discuss the relationship you have with Kennedy and the role that he plays it in your show but before then I'm just interested to know what do you look for in a venue to go on a tour is, is, is size is location what's kind of the the key points for you? Uh, they'll say yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll say yes is number one. I want a theatre that's more than 200 seats. So like I haven't got this ego about I'll only play 3,000 seat theatres because I can't fill them. Um, for me, if I can get 200 seats in a room, that's going to be good. Any less than 200 is going to be a little bit too small. So I tend not to do some of the smaller art centres. There's a couple that are good, but about 200 seats. But having said that, Weymouth is 900 and something. Another theatre, the Grove Theatre in Dunstable, that's something like 900 nod as well um, and uh, and they've been really nice because the truth is we didn't fill them last time we sold a few hundred seats but we didn't fill them uh, and they've had it back and they said no I think this is going to really grow and the audience will want to come back and see it again so we're going back there so yeah for me if it's between 200 and a thousand seats that's a pretty good starting point um, other than that I'm not really too picky I found shows in the Midlands really hard to sell just for some reason we, any, anywhere around the Midlands we're struggling to sell tickets so I'll maybe stay away from there just a bizarre thing. Well, I'm from the Midlands, so I can say <laughs> it's because they're obviously all miserable bastards. <laughs> you can't say, but I can't. Uh, that's interesting. I guess I suppose there's a lot of live music does well in 
right. in the Midlands. I don't know if people are more into that kind yeah, of stuff. Maybe, yeah. So you've you mentioned Kennedy a few times. What kind of what's the relationship between the two of you? So we've been mates for about fifteen or six, no, seventeen or eighteen years, and um, he's he's very creative. Obviously, he produced loads of magic and mentalism stuff uh, for that community. And um, when I started doing the show, he always used to say oh, but it's just crap. It's just the same as everybody else is doing it. Like, there's nothing new here. You know, it's like a Paul McKenna tribute act. It was like, well, the kind of the honest criticism that he gave me. And the truth is, I'm not very creative, so I'm, I'm, good, at, I'm good at looking at what other people do and adapting it to me, but I'm not, for, and I think improving it a bit, but I'm not very good at creating brand new ideas. So it was a few years ago when we decided to do the tour, I said to him, do you want to come on board? Do you want to help me write the show? So create new sketches or put twists on old sketches and, and pull it together and, and make it something a bit different. And we wanted to have like big, big screen projections and cool lighting effects um, so yes yeah, so we started it sort of as a project together um, uh, as a bit of a business thing uh, and we have a lot of fun so we spent uh, last last year yeah we spent a couple of months writing the show and then rehearsing it just me blocking out the show and everything and then took it on tour he came on tour with it last time uh, and then he came up to Edinburgh now just to check on it and make sure I'm still doing it right uh, and yeah so we have a lot of fun writing it and putting it out on the road so you've done magic before and magic yeah. being a magician before I'm interested to kind of hear what the key differences are I suppose between writing a good magic show and writing a good hypnotism show the kind of similarities and the main differences between the two the, the bit I think with creating a magic show I think that so coming up with the plot for the effect or in a hypnosis show the plot for a routine is quite different so coming up with a plot for if I could do magic what would I do it's quite an easy question to ask you can sort of because alright we're limited by method but at the same time, there's, you've got this whole world of, of uh, imagination to explore and say, okay, well, great, what, what would happen? And you've got some physical objects to start with. So, okay, I'm probably going to do this as a coin routine. It's probably going to be something else. Uh, with a hypnosis show, believe it or not, despite the fact that we're not limited by method, it's really hard to come up with something that is uh, funny on stage when people do it. So um, we had the first, the first version of the show that we put out to a couple of small venues as a sort of test, previews and stuff. Um, there's some stuff in the show that we thought was hilarious and it just didn't get a response at all. We always have to wave a little bit of judgment because the first um, routine tends not to get belly laughs, it tends to get like shock and amazement. It's a bit like stunned silence in a magic show. It doesn't sound as impressive as a huge round of applause. Uh, but the first time somebody does that first thing, so in this show they all become orchestra conductors, and the minute they first start to conduct that orchestra, the audience don't laugh straight away because they're actually just amazed that it's happened. Um, so, but, so you have to get that out of the way. But apart from that, sometimes there was some stuff we did in the show and it just didn't get laughs. And we had to really work at it for ages till we realised, actually, that's just not funny or it's creepy or it's weird or it's, like, it's, just, it's wrong. Um, so coming up with stuff that... Um, people can do on stage and is funny appears to us to be harder than creating the premise of a magic trick yeah one of the kind of things I kind of think of when I think what it would be like to be a hypnotist the audience their role in it is so big and in a magic show you might have someone up and they've got to pick a card and show it around and you know if they forget the card you're fucked right. but it seems to me in a hypnosis show where you know the people that are coming up are so uh, important to the show that there can be so many different opportunities yeah. for kind of that not to go exactly according to plan um is it you know how reliable are they 
So that's true. And the other thing about a magic show, of course, is if somebody forgets the card, you can always turn it round. They can pick a different one. You can just make, you know, make fun of it, put, put them in a different direction. Uh, and with a hypnosis show, you can't. So the truth is, at this run, we've had two shows we just couldn't do because we didn't have enough people in. Um, and I'm always like dead honest about the fact that sometimes hypnosis shows fuck up and things, things go wrong. And, and any hypnotist that says they've never had a show where nobody got hypnotized is either lying or hasn't done enough shows. Um, because it happens like it does happen. It is one of those things. Uh, and, you know, on a small scale, I used to do summer seasons in Kos. And we did, at the very start of the season, we had some shows in hotels where there were like 12 people in the audience. And there was more people on stage than there were left in the audience. But I wanted the money, so I just did it. And sometimes they went so well. And sometimes they just didn't. So it's wholly reliant on the audience. Most of the time, it is a numbers game. Most of the time, if you have a decent-sized crowd, like here, we haven't had less than 70 or 80 people in most days. Uh, Saturday last week, we had 300 people in. Um, so, you know, we, we, it sort of varies. Also, but as long as you've got that sort of audience numbers, your statistics are good on your side as long as you know what you're doing. Uh, but I like the challenge of the fact that every day is different. So it's a bit like, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you've noticed improv has taken over the fringe this yeah. year. Like improv is everywhere. Everything's improvised. Harry Potter improvisation, crime scene improvisation, like all this other stuff. Um, and the big play of that is, of course, nobody knows what's going to happen. Audience are going to turn up and stuff's going to happen. And the hypnosis show has the same thing, obviously. Like, I don't know. I know what I'm going to get them to do in theory, but I don't know how well they're going to take to it. I don't know who's going to volunteer. Uh, so I, I like the the thinking on your feet of it all. Do you ever have issues with kind of people that are hypnotised and then kind of during the duration of the show they maybe come out of it and then there's an issue of do they play along and act or do they just sit there and, and not do anything? That's something else I can imagine might be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, so I will as quickly as possible, if I notice it, get rid of anyone who's playing along. Uh, there's a lot of hypnotists have this vision of how it doesn't matter. If they've got their eyes closed or they've got their eyes open and they're doing the thing they're supposed to do, that's all right. And I kind of don't think it is because I've seen hypnosis shows like that. And if I can tell somebody's playing along, you can't always, but if I can tell somebody's playing along because they've got a little smirk or whatever, I will get rid of them. Mainly because I know at some point there's a fair chance I'm going to ask them to do something they just will not do. And then I'm going to look like an idiot. Whereas if I get rid of them, if I get rid of them, well, I knew that that was going to happen and I got rid of them. Uh, so I would rather whittle down the stage and keep really responsive people. Um, so, yeah, it, it, again, it is a thing. And you do get people who, on the way out, you know, they say, do you know what, I was really hypnotised for that first 10 minutes. But then after that, when you, you know, asked me that thing and I remembered my name and then suddenly I was just sort of out of it again. It does happen for sure. Um, but again, it's such a small percentage of people that's usually all right. The easy answer is probably going to be constant. But how often and how much do you kind of have to keep going back to people to make sure they're in the right frame of mind for you during the show so i spend my most hypnotists spend their entire show behind the row of volunteers walking back and forth behind the chairs i spend 90 percent of my time in front of them because i prefer and audiences have commented on it weirdly lay audiences have commented on it that they can tell that it's the confidence i have as a performer to just stand and face them not paying attention to the people behind me the truth is i'm constantly looking in peripheral vision like constantly glancing over just to make sure i'll stand in front of somebody if i think they're not going to do this as enthusiastic i'm quite a safe hypnotist in that respect if i think this person's not going to respond as well as the rest i'll stand in front of them so that all of the attention is on the other people their friends and family will try and bend around and see them but for the most part i'll stand in front of the one that's not going to respond as well so that the audience get a focus on the people who do um so yeah there's co i'm constantly looking constantly Constantly checking. I'm very careful to make sure I'm 99.9% .9 sure they're going to do a thing once I've given them a suggestion. Um, and if I've, I think there's any doubt that they won't do it, I'll skip it and give it to somebody else. Just because, again, people won't do stuff that's against their morals and values. They won't sometimes 
go as far as others. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm constantly checking for that as well. When it comes to kind of crafting your show with, you know, like for example, to compare it to Magic because it's easy for me to compare it to Magic. With our show, we want to have as many kind of wow moments, but then as much humor along the way to that overall big wow. With kind of hypnotism, is it a case of the initial people going under gets that kind of wow reaction and then it's all comedy for the rest? Or what's your kind of aims with sort of emotions and feelings that you want the audience, it's still in the seats to feel? So one of the reactions I get a lot, which surprised me in the earlier days, but I'm glad about it, is people come up and they say, and do you know what, you were really funny as well, because I want them to, so the first beginning of my show, um, I try and, I'm not that worried about the fact that, for example, here, where we've only got an hour to do the show, the first 30 minutes of that is me being on stage trying to be funny and then getting volunteers up and hypnotizing them and then the second half 25 minutes is me doing the funny bit and then waiting them up at the end that seems like a long time to some people but i like it because i think it's important that they get to like they get to enjoy me as well as the the people who are doing crazy things so i suppose i want to make sure that people are laughing and, and having a good time for the first 15 minutes so that by the end of it they hopefully like me hopefully <laughs> And then we get people up and then I do the hypnosis bit and that's where it gets serious, like you said. And then we get into the comedy bit. I have tried in the past to inject some sort of serious moment into the show. And I remember, I think it came from a conversation with Luke Jamey about how he tries to sort of like move his audience, you know, make them feel something in the show. Um, and so there is a thing I came up with years ago by accident where um, you can stop somebody from breathing. So you can take control of their breathing, slow it right down, speed it up and then stop their breathing. A bit like the pull stop, but with breathing. Um, and it works pretty much 100% of the time with anybody, regardless of whether they can be hypnotized or not. And I, I, it's the thing I do if I'm out and somebody says, oh, hypnotize Derek. Uh, the answer is no, but I'll show you this cool thing. I'll show you how hypnosis works. It's about my ability to control your physiology with, with a thought. So I, I do that thing. Um, and I did, I did try it at the start of the second half of one of my theater shows. So I'd get somebody from the stage, get them to, and it was all quite dark and mysterious, get them sat on the front of the stage, and I would do this... Um, uh, it's called breathless, this breathing stop thing. And then at the end of it, just when, when they stop breathing, so I slow their breath, speed their breath up, slow it right down until it stops and the audience sort of gasp. And then I just nudge their head and they collapse backwards onto the stage and go back to sleep. And then all the lights pop back on and we start back on comedy again. And I did quite like it. it like it brought the tone of the show to be something a bit more serious and creepy. Uh, and I did like it, uh, so I did that for a bit. So I do think there is, there, I do think there's space in the show to do something that's a bit more serious. Um, but here we just have time. What's the public perception towards hypnotism and hip hypnotists at the moment then? Is it, because I know there's probably been some negative stigmas attached yeah. to it along the lines. You mentioned Paul McKenna, he's kind of the Paul Daniels of magic really, yeah, you, yeah, know, course, yeah. you know, you say hypnotism, that's the name that people think. Um, yeah, I'm interested to know kind of what the public perception is at the moment. So the one thing I found is people either definitely think that's a thing I want to go and see or they think that's definitely not a thing. Like when I'm out flyering, I can 100% see uh, that people's reaction is either, it's, it's never, oh, that sounds vaguely interesting. It's either, oh, yes, we've got to go to that or no thanks. And that's good because I like to, I think polarizing people is a good thing. So it's, it's definitely either something people want to do or they don't. And if they do want to do it, then they're super enthusiastic about it. And what's nice about it is we get really friendly skeptics in the audience. Like I always say in the show, any, you know, anyone think this might be bullshit and made up? And there's always a few people say yes. And I make a thing about the fact my goal of the show isn't to try and change their mind because I'm not starting a religion. I just want them to leave and have a good time. And they always smile on the way out. 
and they always say that was great I, 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 most of the time they, they go I'm converted people come to the show knowing roughly what to expect sometimes there's some shocked faces because some of my jokes in the opening are a little bit edgy and that's what I try and do so sometimes there's some shocked faces while they settle into my personality and my character mostly it's pretty good I think again it's it's sort of tarred with what I consider to be like the end of the peer type stigma if you like but I'm trying to slowly drag it back into the 21st century as much as possible the way that magic's had a real you know resurgence over the last 10 years 10 15 years uh, I want you know what what the Blaine effect from however long ago that was 20 years ago uh, I'd like to have that effect on hypnosis really and bring it make it a bit more mainstream there's loads of people because I'm 32 now and there's loads of people will come and see the show who are like 18 to 22 23 and they've never seen a hypnotist before because there's not many of us about anymore and um, most of them are older um, so yeah I'm just trying to be the, the guy that makes it a bit more current how do you do that so I think it's about changing what it looks like so for example a really simple thing most people who've seen a hypnotist before will have seen them do the locked hands test and then they make people fall backwards onto the stage so most of the time I don't do that I just changed it for something else created my own thing called the seesaw induction started teaching it as well uh, so I did that for a bit uh, and now that's that that's the only induction I usually use in the show the other day is an exception to that I did the hands lock and the fall back for a few reasons um, but most of the time so I, so first of all change functionally what it looks like I wanted to get rid of all of the old hypnotist jokes or, you know a bit like magicians have got no not that and the clean hand or you write the first, that stuff there's the hypnotist equivalents of that so I wanted to get rid of much as much of that as I possibly could um, so rewrite, there's some stuff you legally have to say, like don't volunteer if you're pregnant or asthmatic and all that stuff. So we just rewrote the jokes around those things. Okay, what else is funny about being epileptic or asthmatic and how do we make that a bit edgy and funny? So um, just started to rewrite all of that stuff. And for me, it's just about making sure the routines are a bit more interesting and a bit more visual. And then of course, having a big screen allows us to have projections and videos. So um, I had uh, like a cool thing with cogs on it and a pocket watch swinging back and forth while I do the hypnosis bit. So it looks a bit more punchy than most shows as well. I wanted to create a show that you couldn't do in pubs. So like I used to do, when I was 17, 18, I did the pub circuit massively. Um, which is well and truly dying out now. But I, I wanted to I wanted to be the show that you, a, pub, a pub can't really hire me because I can't take the show there. I wanted to create a pub that was a show that was a bit more of an immersive experience. And how kind of hard is it or has it been to discover what the public's line is with regard to what you can and can't do to, to volunteers? You know, there's I'm sure there's kind of things that it, it's too far and to get that humour right, I imagine must be kind of quite tough and a fair old learning curve to get there yeah so there's a few things I've discovered I decided in 2009 that I wanted to do mostly like adults only 18 plus offensive hypnosis and I started branding the show that way um, and the Manchester Council tried to ban me from performing so that instantly gave me the ability to say the hypnosis show they tried to ban which has ever since been on all the posters um, and so I mean they failed but they tried um, and so what I, was their reasoning for that so what happened was in 2009 i hired the birdcage cabaret venue in manchester to film a dvd and we went in and we set up the show and we'd sold out the venue pretty much and uh we'd hired the, and it was going to cost a fortune um if, if we had to cancel it and what happened was i applied to manchester uh, council to get the hypnosis license you have to get to do the show and they approved that that was all fine they just basically fill in this form show me public liability insurance and you're done so I did all that. And about a week before the show, I got a call from this woman called Jeanette, who was the head of licensing for the council. And she said, just to let you know, we're going to have to revoke your license. And I said, why? And they said, well, because it's an adult show and you didn't tell us that in the application. And I said, well, you didn't ask. 
what happened was a licensing officer had walked past, officer had walked past the venue and seen the poster, and it's got 18s only, not for the easily offended, triple X rated hypnosis show, um, and reported this back. So she said, uh, it says in the application form, please describe the nature of the hypnosis. And I, was, I have a stock answer for that. It's uh, a group of volunteers will be safely and gently relaxed into a relaxing hypnotic state before, and that, I've described the hypnosis there, not described the routines or the suggestions or any of that stuff. Anyway, so Manchester Council's licensing team said that they were going to speak to the legal team, get them to deal with it, and they said, we're going to revoke the license. So I panicked because I was going to lose like six or seven grand. And um, I could just call it equity, and I have to say, massive, massive big up to equity. Their legal team just made some phone calls and made it go away. They said, no, you just can't do it. And they made that go away. She did send some licensing bodgies down that night time to watch the show on the basis that if I broke any of the laws, they could take me to court on it. So we were just really careful. Um, so. Uh, I knew I wanted to go the edgy route, and so one of my possible problems was I spent a lot of time doing big university shows, so every September I used to do a freshers tour, so we do like 18 or 19 universities, and they were always amazing, because the students are up for anything, and we did loads of stuff. So the end of the show was, it's an old thing, and I kind of combined it together in a newer way, but all the guys would strip off down their boxer shorts, all the women would have orgasms, on, all the girls would have orgasms on stage. And uh, never had any blowback from the universities or anything. So it was fine. And then about, well, it was last April, I did the theatre tour. And we opened in Yeovil. And um, did the show and it all went perfectly well. Finished with the orgasm thing. And the following day, we drove up to Dunstable, which is where the next show was. And I got an email from the, the theatre manager from the night before in Yeovil. And he said, listen, just to let you know, we've had this uh, from an audience member. And I knew somebody had walked out of the show. Uh, but said, so just to let you know, we've had this email from an audience member. Just to let you know, it's not a problem on our end. We're, t we're perfectly happy. We think the show was what you advertised, so it's fine. But we just thought you might want to know. So I said, okay, fine. So I read the email then. I read it to Kennedy, who was with me, and I read it to da um, Gary and Darren, who are the tech guys on the show. And uh, it basically said that, that that orgasm thing, shake a woman's hand, give her an orgasm, was sexual assault. So we had this long debate. I did a Facebook Live about it and I brought it up with anyone who watched on Facebook and I said, so what do you think? Comment below. And It's a, it's a skewed view because most of the people watching are my Facebook friends who've seen the show and like it. So they were, they were mostly, oh, you know, fuck off and all this to the woman. Um, and we didn't take it out of the show. I just kept going for a bit. And, and the, the bit that confused me was, and it took me a while to get my head around, I thought there are definitely comedians doing worse material than me without getting the knockback that I'm getting. And then I realised the difference between telling a joke about something you shouldn't joke about, like you know, rape or paedophiles or whatever, or murder, is very different to making somebody experience something, because now it's like a whole new level. So that was, that was a big lesson for us. And I mean, this is my 17th year of doing it, so I'd have been doing it for 16 years then. And after that period of time, that was like a really big eye-opening lesson, I think. By the end of the tour, we did take it out, not because of that woman complaining, um, just because I, it just didn't sit right with me anymore to do it. Um, the truth is, most of the people on stage are not having orgasms, they're acting as if they are having an orgasm. So for me, it's a different thing. But I thought if it makes audiences uncomfortable, then I don't want it in the show, because it's not funny anymore. So I found out at universities, it's hilarious and tears the room apart. Theatres, just doesn't work as well. So we, it was all right, but we just took it out. So I'm finding that line. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I kind of, at the Fringe, this is very much what the theatre tour is going to be, so that, was there any, ever a kind of idea that maybe you make things slightly edgier for the Fringe, or you just kind of wanted a bed in that theatre show? The, over the tour, what we realised is that the adult 
over 18s only bit actually is as much about the language I use, taking the piss out of the audience. You know, I'm quite offensive to people in the audience and that kind of thing. Um, and so I realised that that's where the edginess can come from rather than being the routines themselves. So some of the routines in this show, somebody's conducting an orchestra, they're on a fishing trip. We'll try and do stupid little things, like we've got a fishing rod with a little plastic cotton on the end of it, and just, just novelty stupid things. But for the most part, most of the routines now are fairly actually fairly safe, but the, the, the uh, offensiveness comes from the jokes I make about the volunteers and the things I say. And we just managed to find that humour in a different part of the show. Um, the truth is here, uh, we haven't had an audience any day where I thought, do you know what these people need? These people need clothes off an orgasm. It's like they just didn't have that about them. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I would have done it. Like I think it's okay. Uh, they've just seemed like quite really nice, civilized people who like the word fuck, so that's fine. But like apart from that, um, yeah, I've just stuck with the routines are fairly safe. The language is not, and that's where that's where we get the offensiveness from. You mentioned you've been doing this 17 years. You mentioned there was a. History of magic. I'm, yeah. I'm interested to hear what first attracted to you to hypnotism. So I started doing magic when I was five. I was like, the, like most of us, I think probably the shy, nervous kid who didn't quite fit in, and I didn't. I was crap at sports and um, just didn't like anything. I was terrified of everything. I was the least confident person imaginable. And I found magic by accident. I saw a magician at a kid's birthday party. Parents bought me a magic set. Started doing magic. Took it really seriously. Got a finals of the Young Magician of the Year competition. Did a Dove act. Um, got beaten by Paul de Beck. Damn it. Uh, and I, I was convinced. I was convinced that magic was what I was going to do for a living. But about that time, uh, when I was fourteen, I'd have been fourteen when I did Young Magician of the Year, I think. Um, and when that happened, I saw a hypnotist. Uh, and then I saw some of Paul McKenna's old reruns on Bravo. And uh, my dad came in and he thought, oh, that's probably all bollocks though. My parents were the most supportive parents when it comes to the fact that you are, if you want to be a magician, be a magician. Don't worry about being a pilot or a doctor or anything like that. If you want to be a magician, then they'll support, they supported me all the way. Um, and so they were really pushing me to do as much as I could to, to, to pursue a career in entertainment, um, which was great. And then over a period of time, I started learning hypnosis. So I bought some DVDs off the internet from the controversial character, Jonathan Royal learnt all of that stuff, um, actually hung, hung out with him and got some additional help. When I was about 16 and a half, oh, I just turned 17, decided I wanted to start doing the show. So I hired, uh, sorry, I contacted some pubs uh, in Newcastle and said, do you want me to come and do a show? And I went out and tried it and it went really, really well. Never hypnotised anyone before, I just sort of learnt the motions of it. Went out, did some shows in Newcastle for free, loved them. Uh, the pubs booked me back. Uh, and then for a while, between like 17 and 19, I was doing magic and hypnosis side by side. So some nights, I'd not together, but some nights I'd be doing like table hopping for a wedding and then the next night I'd be doing a hypnosis show. And it got to a point, I still love magic now, but it got to the point where I woke up in the morning of a close-up gig and I thought, oh shit, I've got to sit in the hollow out of 15 kiwi fruits and I've got to go up to tables and I just didn't want to do it. Um, and I just, I lost the buzz for doing it. I was doing a restaurant that night or a wedding or something and I just didn't enjoy it very much. Um, and Whereas I woke up in the morning and I had a hypnosis show and I was like, yes. Now initially I could have put that down to the fact that hypnosis was newer because I've been doing magic a lot longer. Uh, but it, it just never went away. And the other thing is, totally honestly, I realise I'm a distinctly average magician. In a pool of magicians, I'm distinctly in the middle. There's loads of us. I'm not very creative, so like I'm not doing anything particularly different. Uh, and I couldn't find a way to make... I knew I wanted to do stage stuff and I couldn't, apart from classical dove magic and stuff, I couldn't find a way to get something on stage that was any good I would just be ripping off John Archer or you guys or somebody I'd be in somebody else's act because I just I couldn't find 
that. Um, and then with the hypnosis stuff, I just sort of naturally found myself able to be funny better and being able to enjoy it more and do something that was a bit different. And there's not many hypnotists about, so I knew I was instantly swimming in a much smaller pool. And because there's quite a high, a bit, a bit like there is with, you know, like ventriloquism or escapology, it's quite a, a secretive barrier to entry with hypnosis. Like a lot of people won't tell you how it works or what it is. Um, so I decided I wanted to, to dig into it a bit more and be one of the few that did. So. For, uh, and that was the that was the decision really i'm interested to to follow your career from between 17 and 19 you were doing the pubs i'm interested to kind of know between then and now kind of where were you able to play your trade and is it always been your job or did you have to ever supplement no, so never, it with something I've else i've never had a job job um what happened was so i started doing that and i was doing ki- everything from kids shows to weddings with magic um really busy as a kid's entertainer actually probably doing believe it or not probably doing six to eight parties a weekend having a great time um and then and then weddings on the night time and then uh so when i made the decision to go full-time with hypnosis stuff it was when i was about 19 and uh, i got offered as a guy from uh, gateshead called adam knight a hypnotist came to see the show here a couple of weeks ago actually uh, and he got offered a summer season in Kos, which he was married with kids couldn't do it rang me, said, do you want this? And I said, yeah, definitely. So I went out to Cost. It was an English family who owned a cabaret bar out there uh, called Two Johnnies. And they flew me out there and they said, right, we'll give you two nights of work a week, three when it's busy, but we'll also take you around the island. It's not very big. Around the island and we'll introduce you to the equivalent bar owners in the different resorts, as long as you promise to only work our resort, our, our bar in this resort, which was Cardamina. So I said, okay. So I went over there, I knew I had two, three nights work a week, and they took me around and they took me to Kefalos and all these different places around the island and said, and, and very quickly, just the other, the other cabaret venues booked me up. There wasn't a lot of entertainment there. There was me, there was a guy called William who's an Elvis tribute. There was a Roy Chubby Brown tribute act and a comedian called Brian. Uh, and I think that was probably everybody. And, um, and they slowly drifted off over the next few years. I think there was only me left in the end. Uh, and there's a singer called Mickey Malibu, and he was still there till the bit around. Um, so I had a, the summer of my life, and it changed me as a person. I went over there. I didn't really drink when I went over there. If I had a Smyrna ice, that was a heavy night for me. Um, and, uh, and then three, three or four seasons later, uh, I'd made so many friends and had such a great time. I, I, in that time, I put a thousand shows under my belt, and I was like, Christ, I'm 22 and I'm 23, and I've done a thousand shows now. It, it got to the point where I was like, I feel ready to come home and do something else. So I got to the end of that last summer season. I knew I was getting too old to keep going, so I came home. Had to start again from scratch. So I started doing the pubs again for a bit. And then in conversation with some of my magician friends who were doing a lot of corporate work, I realized the money was there. So I thought, great, how do I do corporate gigs as a hypnotist? That was a really hard battle. So I had to try and overcome that. It takes a very specific type of company to hire a hypnotist. Usually it's if they've got a more manual labor trade like engineers or that sort of thing. So I started pursuing that, but I realized the easy money for me was at universities. So fresh as they have a big, so I probably didn't. 70% 70% of my annual revenue in September um, and then the rest of the time doing a gig a week maybe two uh, so I, I, it gave me the chance to experience entertaining rowdy British tourists in Kos coming home doing really stiff hard corporate gigs here some of them were really hard like if there was a board of directors for something that was that was tough um, and then uh, and then doing universities as well so that's mostly been what I've been doing for the, since then and then again the last couple of years that's merged into I realized I prefer being doing a show where people have bought a ticket or they've come to see my show rather than me being interrupting at some event so I'm trying to push in that direction now. that's definitely kind of where Ed and I want to be as well you know yeah. it's much nicer when people have made you're you're their decision for the night right, you know exactly. they've made the decision for it uh, 
what are the kind of um, short-term, long-term goals then, I suppose? Is it building this, this touring theatre repertoire or is there other things on the horizon? I suppose. It sounds ridiculous, I think. But I, I'd love to do what Darren's done with medalism, with hypnosis. I'd love... Uh, you know, medalism's been a thing forever. Uh, but if you ask the general public what a mind reader was before Darren came about in this country, they'd sort of go like a psychic or like a magician like nobody really knew and then Darren just came along and reinvented it and now people just know who Darren is and what he does and they go and see that and that's what it is and to the point now a poster says Darren Brown in massive letters and the show title is in tiny letters my poster Robert Temple's quite big but the hypnotist is in massive letters I want everyone so we've got the working title for next year's show which I'll not reveal yet but that's got the hypnotist cool and there's something else just a different so this year it's live and outrageous next year it'll be something different um, so it'll always have the hypnotist in it and the goal is that that word will get smaller and then my name will get bigger and people will be coming to see my show rather than to see The Hypnotist. So right now I know most, of the pe most people are coming to see That Hypnotist that's on. Um, I think I want to build a brand where people come and see me. I'd like to make it more mainstream and get it to the point where we're selling out theatres rather than just doing okay, which is what we're doing now, uh, truthfully. Um, and I suppose I'd like to do what The Illusionists have been able to do with The Magic Show uh, and be The Hypnotist that's doing that. Still one person not yeah, a mixed yeah, bill like me yeah, yeah yeah but in terms of building a brand and a, a following and selling out the sort of size they're selling out so maybe america on the horizon because obviously british america's much uh, hypnosis is much more popular in america than it is here there's obviously a lot more people doing it but the british thing's interesting so yeah so i think for me five ten years time i'd like to be doing what darren and the illusionists are doing but with hypnosis awesome and um yeah i kind of wonder if there's been any kind of other key challenges or things that kind of memorable moments over your past 17 years working that's kind of taught you anything or kind of key advice you might give someone looking to get into hypnotism yeah so i think the hardest the hardest bit of all is when you have shows that just don't work um and there's two ways you can go with that you can either blame the audience which is what i've seen some hypnotists do and just start swearing at the audience and tell them it's their fault uh, or you can just sort of politely take it and apologize and, you know like for example i don't whip out a deck of cards and do my rendition of cards across so they get a show i just sort of say well you know this is the way it goes this is an audience participation event and sometimes this this happens um so that's the first bit is just to know that is going to happen and just be prepared for the fact that sometimes it will you get that gut-wrenching feeling where you've just got to apologize and end the show uh, so be ready for that um, be ready for the fact that actually lots of people aren't looking to book hypnotists but that's not does not say they won't so for example if you said uh, I need to book some entertainment for a wedding what should I have magicians probably going to be one of the first things people think of bam DJ magician um, most people don't know they're looking for a hypnotist so I realized that actually um, where a lot of hypnotists I think have struggled is to advertise themselves as a hypnotist for people looking for a hypnotist I realized I have to go out and find out people having events and sell them on the idea of having a hypnotist. Oh, that would be a cool thing to have. Uh, so that's the first thing. Realize that people, most people aren't looking to book a hypnotist. Some are, most people aren't, and therefore you have to put the idea in their head. Um, it's probably another big thing for me from a point of view of my days of just doing booked work. Um, yeah, and three, just people, people know what a hypnotist is, and I think it's, this is advice I'd give to anyone who's considering doing a show for the public. So it's a, it's a thing I've seen loads here. I sat in a bar last night and there were loads of flyers on the table and I picked one up and I, I looked at it for like five minutes and I didn't know what it was by the end. And I thought, why is anybody going to go and see this? I'm sure it's excellent, but why is anyone going to go and see it? I don't know what it is. Is it a poetry reading? Like, I don't know what this is. So for me, I was like, let's just... So you guys, on one of yours, have got you know, a magic show about being twins. Yeah. And I was like, that's great, because that, people know what that is. That's easy. So... Um, I just knew that I wanted to put something um, 
and like you know Dave Anik does it really well as well like the, literally the best magician ever or something it was last year's show uh, so I think so that's why my shows are, are until I'm famous enough always just going to be the hypnotist and then some catchphrase afterwards uh, so yeah just if you're going to do a show of any description hypnosis or otherwise just fucking tell people what it is and there's something that I, I think I mentioned to you when I stuck my head in yeah. your room a few times because I kind of thought I'd like to get you on the podcast I was saying you know I'd like to have a hit to stop but I want to watch some of your stuff so I stuck my head in and watched your show a bit and the one thing I remember saying to you was I loved your scripting and your presentation and you know we find certainly when we're betting in a new show that the longer the run goes words are removed from yeah. sections because we say too much whereas when I was watching you I was like everything is really like really concise and beautifully scripted it, is that something that's just kind of come from years of doing stuff or is there been kind of training or is there been resources you've used to kind of get that so I did lots of drama training uh, my stepmom was a she was a teacher and when she retired she trained with lambda and started doing drama training so I, I did a load of drama training through lambda stuff uh, so that helped I think um, the whole introduction to my show is scripted word for word the whole wake up to my show is scripted word for word um, and it came about as a combination of writing a script, learning it, performing it in the show, and slowly modifying it over time. And so now, for example, my wake-up piece uh, has a great piece of music behind it, and there's a, um, there's a bit where, by accident once, when I performed it, um, when I wake them up, I count down from 10 down to 1, and when they get to 1, that's when they're fully awake. And um, in this piece of music, it's called Poppy Holler, when I started saying, that once by accident, I said, and everybody on the count of 10, and suddenly there's this like amazing like enlightening sounding bit of the track and suddenly i thought shit i've got to try and time that so that happens every time because now it's the lovely build up and then i start counting down from 10 out to one as there's like this sunrise piece of music we've even got a sunrise on the screen now that rises behind me um and so that was an accident and so i thought right i've got to pay attention to when that's coming up next time and then i've got to just try and time my words so it makes it fit and now without really thinking about it that just fits really nicely so yeah it's a combination of, of rote script learning and then refining it over a period of time, realizing there's some stuff. So I, I, um, I actually stumble over my words more than I want to. And one of the things I noticed I said is there's a bit in the show where I say, just to double check, you're all fit, well and healthy. You're all over the age of 18. You've all uh, come up here of your own free will. And I realized every time I said, come up here of your own free will, those words just merged into each other. You've all come up and I end up tripping over it. So this actually in this run, despite the fact I said that forever, in this run, I've changed it to be, um, and you've all volunteered of your own free will. And I don't have that anymore now because it's such a distinctive sound. There's a vowel, in, a consonant in there that cuts through the vowels. So yeah, so it is just a constant case of like trying to refine it uh, as much as possible. There's some stuff like I used to, and Kennedy beat some stuff out of me as well. There was some stuff I used to say like, before we can get you nice and relaxed, nice and hypnotized. And he pulled me to one side after she said, what's nice and hypnotized? <laughs> just hypnotized, isn't it? Like get you nice and relaxed, get you hypnotized. So that changed. Um, so just words like that. There's some, some sort of... Uh, I have, some, I have some really bad words that I drop in, so I say so all the time, so that I know I need to get that out of the show. Um, yeah. You've mentioned loads of performers during this conversation, which is great, because it, know, it tells me that you are inspired and influenced by loads of performers and that you enjoy watching other performers, but who are some of your biggest influences? And I imagine this might be across magic, variety, hypnotism, or yeah. all sorts. Who are some of the biggest inspirations to you? I think, so I grew up watching Paul Daniels' stuff and he was a really, really great, um, like he gave me quite a lot of advice and help and stuff, um, so Paul Daniels definitely. 
Um, when Darren burst onto the scene, I was still quite young. I remember going to see the first ever tour before he'd really become famous. He was selling a big theatre, but he wasn't doing a week in one big theatre. Um, so Darren's been a massive influence. So whenever I go, I'll go and see Darren every year and I'll always go, okay, great. How do I take that principle and apply it to what I'm doing? So without nicking it, how do I take that, that idea? How do I take a thing that makes an audience feel that way and put it in the show? Um, so his style of humour, I remember in the first ever show when he did the pound coin in the hand thing, before everybody did that, um, he, did, uh, he did a joke about, have you got a pound, sir? Buy yourself a comb. And just sort of that slightly like charming but attacking. So I think because I'm quite camp, uh, well, you know about this, because uh, I'm quite camp, uh, I can get away with saying stuff that some people might not. Like there's lots of people say after the show, like, loads of people think I'm, I'm gay and I think that gives you an extra element of, you can almost be ruder to people. Uh, if that's what they maybe think, that's an interesting thing. Um, so I, I sort of take, I took ideas from Darren's humour originally and tied that into it. Um, I really love watching Luke Jamey. Uh, he gave me a lot of advice, loads and loads of advice when I started doing the theatre show because obviously he was doing it before I, uh, theatre tour, he was doing it before I was. So from a business perspective, Luke gave me lots of help. Um, so Luke is a, is a really big inspiration. Uh, from the fringe point of view, uh, Dave Anik was probably one of the big players in getting me to do this just watching just watching him do it and thought i can see why this works watching money flood into the bucket at the end of the show uh yeah but I, loads of inspirations mostly from magic i think i love cirque du soleil everything they do i love the theatricality of everything um and the i suppose from a business perspective anybody who's able to create a brand like that or like the illusionists is again a really big inspiration as well and the final question goes back to something you said right at the very beginning when you said that you first filmed the show because you wanted to get into cruising and you don't uh, have you done the cruise market are you looking to do it still or are you very much happy on land so I never sent the video off to anybody uh, sorry to Russ Stevens for all your hard work it's still sat on their hard drive um, but I uh, there was a lady actually came to see the show here from Royal Caribbean and said do you do cruises and I was like well no I've, I've vaguely thought about it, but I haven't just, I just haven't pushed it. Uh, and um, she said, uh, I'd love to have a chat, gave me a card, and we're having a call this week, so see where that goes. Um, I'll, I'll definitely do it if, if it works out right. I don't want to be away all the time. I know loads of cruise entertainers who are away, like, constantly. And that's all they do, and I don't want to do that. But, like, one every couple of months would be nice. Awesome. Anything else you want to add? That's pretty much all no, for me. No, it's been bloody delightful to be here. Thanks for having me. This has been great fun. Pleasure. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.